Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Slot machines work off this thing that I call the scarcity loop and it's got three parts. It's got opportunity, unpredictable rewards, and quick repeatability. With um, behaviors that fall into the scarcity loop, you can repeat over and over and over. You can put this loop in things that are other than slot machines. This is what makes social media work. It's in dating apps. It's in online shopping. Wherever it goes, it tends to lead people into excess. So tech companies are always looking for ways to speed up behavior because that increases uh, what they call time on device, which is a term the casino industry uses and tech companies use. Most people don't realize that their mind is being hacked all the time. I'm not saying that people should never use social media or never play slot machines or, you know, never have a drink. I think what we're really talking about is intentionality behind it. And I think that we live in a world now where (laughs) it's really easy to not do things uh, intentionally. Michael Easter, it's so good to have you back on the pod. Welcome. Thanks for having me back, man. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you know, the last time you came on, we talked about your book, Comfort Crisis. And then when I was reading this, I was thinking about how I'm so excited to look back on your writing career to see where you went. Because I want to know the like underlying mission that you'll go on, you know, because you seem to be drawn into these in, in, in you have an idea and then you get drawn into this crazy adventures. Mm-hmm. So like, how would you define the underlying mission that sort of threads these two books, which for everybody listening, watching scarcity brain is Michael's new book and uh, fix your craving mindset and rewire your habits to thrive with enough, which that sounds pretty apropos to the times we're in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, ultimately, I'm a journalist, right? So I make an observation that oftentimes it'll be something that doesn't make sense. Or I'll be like, huh, I wonder why that is. And then that leads me to chase down the answers. I mean, my job is to not just go, huh, that's interesting, and then Google it and move on with my life. My, <laughs> right, right. my job is to literally go, okay, we need to talk to all these sources. We need to go all these places. We need to find the answer to this thing. I think what unites these two books is, you know, The Comfort Crisis is about how as our world has become more and more comfortable, we've lost a lot of the things that keep us healthy, that keep us happy, all these important things. Um, this book, Scarcity Brain, I mean, it really looks at why can't humans get enough? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think whereas the comfort crisis was slightly more 
um, maybe more of a physical book. This is more like a intellectual book. And it's more, I would say, how does our mind work in ways that oftentimes works against us? You start off talking about Las Vegas, you know, where we are right now. Yeah. Is that what triggered it? Yeah. It was, um, I would say the first part was I had finished the comfort crisis in March of 2020. So this is when the pandemic is popping off, the world is ending. And, um, you know, I make this observation that right when people realize that like, oh, the pandemic is actually like a thing, like this, we're going to lock down. Everyone goes to the grocery store. Everyone thinks that the items they need to survive are scarce, right? So people are just fighting for toilet paper. We're hoarding all the hand (laughs) sanitizer we can, like craziness. Um, But then after that, you saw people start to um, lean into overconsumption in different ways. So a lot of people gained weight. Um, A lot of people, yeah, (laughs) a lot of people increased their screen time. Uh, impulse purchasing spiked, drug and alcohol use spiked, all these behaviors that um, I think we would consider either bad or not good. Yeah. They all started rising. And so I kind of wondered why that was. Um, you know, the question, what I like to say is that, you know, everyone knows that everything's fine in moderation, yet we all suck at it. <laughs> right. So, so true. Why the hell is that? Now, living in Las Vegas is a great town to think about that topic because this town is literally built to get people in and um, push them out of moderation, (laughs) right? Too much gambling, too much eating, too much spending, too much X, Y, Z stimulation. And um, so that, yeah, that it, it really started, I would say in Las Vegas, making observations about how this town works. We can get more down that rabbit hole, but it is a fascinating place to observe human behavior. Like I really think of this town as a sort of, massive laboratory mm-hmm. for observing how humans work and behave and what leads us to overconsume. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if uh things like slot machines just by the the when you land in Vegas there is the marketing or branding of Vegas is like uh what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So I wonder if just that knowing when you're coming here actually predisposes you to more excess you know, because you're almost like anonymous in some ways, which of mm-hmm. course you're not now in today's world, but there's a perception of that. I'd be curious to see if like a slot machine in Vegas performed more or better than a slot machine in a different place. I, my guess is probably not because we are such simple animals mm-hmm. that like just change our place and we're like, yeah, so mm-hmm. well, I was really intrigued by when you were looking at what makes things like slot machines really captivating and the, and the adjustments, like you talk about a lab on the edge of, I think it's on the edge of town. Mm -hmm. Can you speak more to that? And like what they study there? I mean, it's wild. Yeah. So we don't stand a chance, you know? Yeah. So the, (laughs) you know, like I said, Vegas is a weird town. You see a lot of weird stuff, but, um, the strangest thing is that slot machines are everywhere. And even stranger than that is that people play them around the clock. I mean, we're talking about they're at grocery stores, they're at the gas stations, they're at restaurants, like you just said, they're at the airport. And people play and play and play, like 6 a.m. You've probably been in the grocery store super early and there's people sitting there just ding, 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 ding. It's very strange. Yeah. And so I observed that, like I said, right at the beginning. It's like you make an, I make an observation and I go, (laughs) 
what the hell is up with that? Yeah, you're right? like, I'm getting eggs. <laughs> They're losing $2,000 <laughs> yes. at a freaking Whole Foods or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to find out why our slot machines are so compelling because everyone knows the house always wins, right? Mm. It's a behavior that yeah. doesn't make sense. The longer you play, the more you lose. It's simple math. So I start by calling up these uh, people who I would consider anti-gambling researchers. And they tell me all these things that the average person has probably heard about casinos, right? Like, oh, there's no clocks. You know, I say, why do people play slot machines so long? And they're being like, oh, well, there's no clocks uh, in casinos. So people lose their track of time and they play and play and play. Um, Another one told me that casinos don't have right angles because right angles supposedly activate the decision-making part of your brain and that slows down um, your rate of gambling. Another told me, because uh, slot machines only play in the key of C. And the key of C is supposed to be relaxing and it relaxes your <laughs> wallet, right? And so I'm like, okay, I mean, this sounds kind of weird, but like, all right, you guys are, you have PhDs, you know? Um, but then I go in the, into a casino and you can pretty easily refute a lot of those claims. I mean, one, no, casinos don't have clocks, but like neither does any other business, right? Like Costco, Target, Walmart, yeah, they don't just true. hang clocks that's everywhere. True. Yeah. Right. It's not normal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the right angle thing. There's right angles everywhere in casinos. <laughs> Slot machine screens are a fucking square. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and then I even call up this guy who's a uh, slot machine mu- music designer. What would it be called? Composer. Yeah. Slot machine audio composer is his official what a, title. What a niche. Yes. Oh yeah. Totally. Um, and he's and he goes, no, like, where the hell did you hear that? He's like, I'm just making music that I think sounds good. I'm going to use all the keys at my disposal. Yeah. So my my problem, I realize, is that I'm calling up people who want us to all stop gambling. I need to call people who want us to start gambling. Oh, interesting. You yeah. got to follow the money on this one, right? Yeah. So I, long story short is, you know, it's one of those things where this person tells me to talk to this person, tells me to talk to this person. And this leads me to this place uh, in Las Vegas that is this new cutting-edge casino. It's on the edge of town, um, but it's used entirely for human behavior research. So you can't just like go in there and start gambling. It's a full-on working casino, but it's filled with um, basically PhDs doing you know studies on how humans behave in casinos. Mm-hmm. And one of the important parts about this is that it is funded by 73 different companies. So there are gambling companies, like the big ones you see on the strip, like Caesars and Boyd and all those. Um, But there's also a bunch of tech companies involved. So like Adobe, Zoom, all these tech companies. Interesting. And so that's, you know, that you go, oh, that's interesting. Um, So while I'm there, and I can tell you, it is like the twilight zone of casinos. Like you are in a casino, um, but it's, you know, it's not a casino too. Is it blinded to the people who are there? Or do they do know mean? they're enrolling in? Yeah. So, you know, you're enrolling in. Oh, this, you like, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. You know, you're enrolling. Um, but while I'm there, I talked to a guy who's a slot machine designer. And um, he helps me understand how these things work and capture behavior and push people into this uh, decisions that hurt them in the long run. And um, slot machines work off this thing that I call the scarcity loop. And it's got three parts. It's got opportunity, unpredictable rewards, and quick repeatability. So you have an opportunity to get something of value. In the case of a slot machine, it's money, right? Unpredictable rewards. You know that if you keep repeating the behavioral behavior, you'll get that valuable thing eventually. But you don't know when, and you don't know how big it's going to be, mm. right? So slot machines, you play a game, the wheels spin, 
They could land and you get nothing. They land and you get a couple bucks. They land and you get a couple thousand bucks. Yeah. Right. So it's this crazy range of outcomes. And then third is quick repeatability, which you can repeat the behavior immediately. And this is unlike normal human behaviors. Like if you have an itch and you scratch it, you know the itch is going to go away. Yeah. Right. You do the thing and you're done. That's it. But with um, behaviors that fall into the scarcity loop, you can repeat and repeat and repeat over and over and over. Pretty much forever if you really wanted to. Um, And so then you go back to, okay, well, why are all these companies invested in this place? And that's because you can put this loop in things that are other than slot machines, right? And it'll lead people to repeat behaviors. So this is what makes social media work. It's in dating apps. It's in um, elements of it are really getting put into new financial apps. Uh, I think it's in online shopping in a lot of ways. And it's kind of one of those things that like wherever it goes, it tends to lead people into excess, tends to push them into behaviors that are fun in the short term because it is fun to gamble in the short term. It is fun to buy crap you don't need online in the short term, but long-term problems. So like with gambling, eventually you end up spending too much with shopping. You buy all this crap you don't need um, on and on and on. When I was reading, uh, one thing that you mentioned is that when they switch from a button, like, sorry, from an arm to a button, there was like a dramatic increase just because of the level, because you were saying repeatability. So it's easier for me to go tap, tap, tap. And you talk about some research on pigeons. Can you Mm -hmm. share, which I think for you listening, you might be like, pigeons, how does that relate to humans? Unfortunately, (laughs) quite well. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the the button thing is really interesting when they yeah, yeah when they switched that it it more than doubled the rate at which people gamble. So now people play pay, play about nine hundred games in an hour on slot machines. So that's more than we blink. So it's like you can just do do that's bananas. Do, do, it's crazy, it's totally crazy. Um, but as a general rule, the faster you can repeat a behavior, the the more likely you are to repeat it. So time will just even inserting the element of time and weight will stop people from doing something decreases the likelihood that they'll do something. If it takes longer to repeat it. Mm -hmm. So the ability to repeat it. Yeah. So here's a good example. If uh, let's say with Instagram, in order to look at the photos, you had to flick them side to side, every single photo, you had to flick it side to side. And there was like a two second wait. How much time would you spend on Instagram? Not a lot. Everyone would be off it. Instead, we have infinite scroll. Yeah. Just, it goes seamlessly into the next one. There's zero wait. You can start to see the next one before you finish looking at the, the other one, right? Um, so tech companies are always looking for ways to speed up behavior because that increases uh, what they call time on device, which yeah. is a term the casino industry uses and tech companies use. Um, but to answer your question about pigeons, so... Once I talk to this slot machine designer guy, I go, okay, like, but why? Why is this thing so, like, why are we so pulled into this? And he just is like, I, I don't know, dude. Like, <laughs> this is just how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I just make money off it. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> um, so I called this dude whose name is Thomas Zental, and he's this uh, old school behavioral psychologist. He's like 80 something. He still spends... I think it's 60 hours a week in the lab. Wow. Like, I mean, he's, he's just like loves his job and he's done these studies where he can train pigeons to basically become 
degenerate gamblers like very quickly. (laughs) So he will, what he does is uh, he will, he's got these pigeons who are in, you know, the cages or whatever, and he will put them in a cage that has two different games. So in the first game, they peck a light and every other time they peck, they get 15 units of food. Okay. The second game, about every fifth peck, they get 20 units of food. So this is more like a gambling game because they don't know. It's not like it's every first one out of five. It could be the third one out of the five one time. And then it's the second one out of the five. So it's unpredictable. It's just like a slot machine, but they get a little bit more food, more food. Now, if you do the math, uh, it makes much more sense to play the first game. Because if you play that, say, 100 times, you're going to end up with significantly more food than if you were to have played uh, the second game. Now, there's this theory called optimal stimulation theory, or, uh, sorry, uh, optimal foraging theory. And it basically says that animals will do uh, whatever they can, put in the least amount of of effort to get the most food possible. That that hits, yeah. Right, so you go, okay, based on this theory that we've seen in the wild, these pigeons should all be playing the first game. And what he finds is that 97% of pigeons will play the gambling game, the one that gets them less food. Yeah. It's January, and like so many of you are probably navigating, there is a desire for a renewed commitment to eating healthier, especially after holiday feasting. Now, my number one tool of choice in this venture in feeling good, nourishing the body is Organifi's green juice. You know I love this stuff. I love talking about it. I love the brand. And the reason I love specifically the green juice is, number one, I'm a busy father. I'm a husband. I run a business. I'm a teacher. I don't always have time to juice a bunch of leafy greens. I mean, really, who does? And this high-quality powdered version of greens makes my morning routine so easy. I literally don't have an excuse since all I have to do is mix the powder in some cold water or some almond milk, and I'm good to go. Now, it has also helped me reach my wellness goals. I've lost over 25 pounds in the last six months, and that's one of the benefits of taking this green juice every morning because it reduces my craving for sweets. Plus, it maintains cortisol levels so I don't gain weight when I get stressed, and it helps me stay hydrated. Now, number three is that unlike other green juice powders, it actually tastes super delicious. They have two awesome flavors, the original minty flavor and my favorite, the crisp green apple flavor. And it's not loaded with any sugar to disrupt my ketone levels. And there are also so many health benefits. Inside these greens, you'll get a clinical and effective dose of ashwagandha, the adaptogenic herb that supports cortisol levels and so much more, and moringa, which they call nature's most perfect multivitamin, rich in vitamins, minerals, and amino acids, chlorella, an alkalizing freshwater algae rich in chlorophyll, vitamins, and minerals, and spirulina, a nutrient-dense freshwater algae loaded with antioxidants. So I invite you to join me in a fresh, healthy start to 2024. Use the code CREATETHELOVE for 20% off green juice and any other amazing products at Organifi.com slash create the love. So did you find that when you were learning about things like this, that they were studying, let's say pigeons, and that they're making these machines so accessible to extract every dollar from your bank account? That like, if you're not conscious of what, you know, the scarcity loop, that you just end up in it. And I've been in it. I get in it. I'm sure everybody listening, if you don't, tell us your secrets. But did you did you get angry at all that there's such an exploitation of this biological drive or this this? I guess it's like a software that's running in us. Yeah. So uh, once the guy tells me about his pigeon study, yeah, we're like whoa. So like all animals will choose this, you know, scarcity loop 
gambling game. Um, his theory about why goes back to um, evolution and how we evolved to find food. Yeah. So if you think about finding food, it's basically a random rewards game, which is just like a slot machine. You go to one place looking for food because you need the food to survive, right? That's right. the opportunity. Um, but it's unpredictable, right? You don't know where the food's going to be. You go to one place, it's not there. You go to the next place, no food. Next place, jackpot. You've got enough food to survive. That is insanely exciting. Yeah. Because, oh, great. We're not going to die. <laughs> like, right. That's a good day. Yeah. Uh, and you repeat that literally all day for life. So this system, our attraction to this yeah. system is sort of uh, wired into our brain. We just focus and hone in on these unpredictable reward games, uh, which good because it keep, kept us alive for millions of years. But now once you put that same system in things like slot machines and things like social media and things like, um, I don't know, Twitter, uh, even people getting hooked on email, financial apps, all these different things. You can see how, I don't know, maybe we don't want to be spending as much time as we do. And it really is like, I like to explain it as, um, it's if you fall into overdoing any of these things, it's not necessarily your fault because it's a very human thing to do, but it is your problem to solve. Yeah. And so to answer your question, did I get frustrated? I mean, part of it was, I would say sometimes I would. On the other hand, um, the opposite, if, if you were to take that to reasonable, okay, I'm really frustrated. We got to do something about this. Well, then the question is, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? Yeah. And the only way to really slow down these behaviors would be to make them all a lot more boring. And so we would have to go, okay, if we don't want <laughs> That's people... That's the alternative shit. Yeah, yeah. If we don't want people to gamble, we have to make gambling not fun. If we don't want people to spend time on Instagram, we have to ask Instagram to please censor videos that are too exciting <laughs> and make people laugh <laughs> yeah. too much and yeah. capture our attention, yeah. right? And um, I'm not saying you should never, like, sensor content or put wheels on it. Like the gambling industry is pretty heavily regulated, for example. Um, but I do think it's really a question of, um, I think it's a better use of resources to put the on- onus on the individual and be like, okay, we need to figure out how you can manage these things. Because the reality is, is like, if you take something like gambling, like most people in the world can gamble and they have fun. They don't lose that much money. They're like, okay, yeah, I, I have my $100 for the, you know, the Saturday night. I'm only going to gamble with this. And maybe they win some. Great. They lose their $100. And they're like, okay, well, that was kind of fun. I'm going home. Um, a small percentage, though, will gamble their life away. Yeah. And that's with every single behavior that can be maladaptive. That's with uh, alcohol. That's with gambling. That's with online shopping. That's with time online. That's with all these things. There's always going to be this small percentage of people that just do it to such an excess that it ruins their life. But for the vast majority of people, we can kind of keep it on the rails. And so I think trying to overly regulate it to um, sort of save the butts of the, of the right. people who can't, it's like, because you never know what it's going to be for someone, right? It's like, you know, for example, I'm sober. I don't drink because I was one of those people who can't regulate alcohol. But for me to um, get out of that, I couldn't sit around waiting for the government to be like, <laughs> yeah, hey, hey. Michael, you have a problem. Yeah, exactly. We'd like to help. <laughs> exactly. Right. So I had to kind of figure that out for myself. And I think that's how, if, you know, if people do are struggling with behaviors that are really hurting them, um, the onus is sort of on, on them, you know? 
Do you think because society has sort of normalized this engagement with excess that people would even identify that they're in a state of excess? Well, I think that it's very easy to see societally if it's something like drugs or alcohol, you know, because there's such stigma around that or gambling, for example. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's quite as apparent for things like, say, shopping or... I mean, it's becoming more apparent, I think, for time online as we get more conscious about that. Yeah. But even that, you know, I'll um, I'll do days where I, uh, in my, I'm a professor at UNLV, well, where I'll have my students kind of take an audit of their screen time. And I'll have students who are spending, you know, more than 10 hours a day on their phones. And it's mainly on TikTok. And like, to me, that's just like being a a junkie. Right. You're like, well, <laughs> but it's on this app uh-huh. and, but no one really, you know, no one's going to be like, dude, you need to go to rehab for that. Right. Right. So I think that there are some behaviors that we think of as, um, you know, society just generally accepts, even though they're, I think, hurting people in the long term. Well, it's interesting because I think of someone being, let's say on TikTok for that many hours. And I'm grateful that I never got captured by the TikTok thing, which TikTok changed how it, displayed content because it went from you know instagram you follow 100 people you get that 100 people's content originally mm-hmm. and tiktok was like yeah like you can follow those 100 people and that's great we'll show you their stuff every once in a while but we're actually going to create an algorithm that identifies what you look at and then what you engage with most and spend the most time on and we're going to like pop some of those in there which that makes me think of the pigeon it's like peck peck like slide slide oh uh oh, slide, slide. And I mean, I've definitely done that where I'm like, oh, I'm going to go on and look up this thing or cha- do this email. And all of a sudden I'm looking at YouTube shorts or something. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's, it, so when I think about someone being captured, like a young person like that or anybody, because I'm sure there's people of every age captured by social media and TikTok. I think, I just like the, maybe the savior or the like martyry feeling it's like they don't stand a chance, but if they know about it, at least they have a bit of a chance, you yeah. know, because for me, I reading your book really, it created this pattern recognition of where the scarcity loop existed. And I was like, shit is everywhere. Oh, it's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like in, since COVID that it's really so much more amplified. And I, I know you were saying at the beginning, like, we went so online at that time mm-hmm. and like we weren't at work. We weren't driving to work generally. Not everybody, obviously, but um, like I know you say the onus is really on the individual and I totally agree with that. I just wonder how we even ourselves can minimize or moderate. Mm-hmm. How do we capture the loop? Like how do I, okay, I know that TikTok is seven hours a day or whatever. Mm-hmm. I know that I love porn. I know that I love gambling. Fuck. Like, I'm like you with drinking. I don't drink anymore because I was really good at it. Yeah. But, not, you know, it has consequences. Yeah. TikTok doesn't have immediate consequences. Right. You it's know? harder to see. Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, no one wakes up after a TikTok binge and goes, where's my car? Right. <laughs> what did <laughs> right, I do right. last night? Who did I scroll last night? Yeah. You know? Totally. Um, so I think that one, as you kind of pointed out, just becoming aware of, like, how it works is useful. Yeah. Um, this is this leverages something called the Hawthorne effect, where basically when behaviors are observed, they tend to change. Uh, two is that you can remove or change any of the three parts. 
So you can take away or change the opportunity. You can take away or change the unpredictable rewards. You can take away or change um, how fast the behavior is. So you can slow down the behavior, basically. So when I think about um, something like opportunity, it's like, let's say you're kind of in this loop of shopping. Well, a lot of people buy stuff for reasons they haven't even thought of. Right? <laughs> That's true. It's like uh, framing your possessions. So in the, in the book, I talk about framing possessions through this lens of gear, not stuff. Because gear, the, it, inherently, it's something you use for something that allows you to achieve a higher purpose. Mm. Where I think a lot of times like people that. will buy stuff because, frankly, they're bored. Because they think, oh, if I just buy this thing and uh, let's say it's a piece of clothes, like I'm going to look a certain way and like that is going to open up the world for me socially, right? We kind of manufacture these narratives in our head about like what a certain purchase is going to allow us to do in the future. But it's like this grand weird thing that's like <laughs> socially. Um, and sometimes we purchase for status too, you know, it's like yeah. I need to have this item because um, it'll make me, you know, just whatever better person. So I think like, Thinking of what the opportunity of a behavior is like, why am I really doing this is the fundamental question we're asking here. And then, and then asking yourself, okay, is, there, uh, is that a good reason <laughs> for doing yeah. this? Uh, and if it isn't, what else could I do? Like, how, what are better ways to spend my time? Um, when you think of unpredictable rewards, a good one um, that sounds weird but totally works, demonstrated in studies with cell phone, is um, so... Screen colors are very stimulating and they stimulate behavior. So if you think of like red, if you see a red octagon on the street, it tells you to stop. Yeah. Right. So colors just, they excite us. So if you can put your phone into grayscale mode, on average, people's screen time drops by at least 40 minutes a day. And that's wow. simply because your phone all of a sudden is now less rewarding. It's quite boring, actually. That makes sense, actually, watching videos in grayscale versus, of course, color. It's, it's crazy. How, and at, at first, like I've done this. Um, yeah, I've done that too. You'll start to kind of like, it's weird. Yeah. But your screen time immediately goes down. Um, and then slowing down the, how fast you can repeat a behavior. So I talked about, um, I can't remember if this is before or after we were recording. Um, putting in a pause of if you're purchasing too much stuff, like, okay, I'm going to uh, only purchase stuff in person. Because it used to be that you had to go in person to buy things. Yeah. Right. And now you can just do it straight from your phone. Or I'm going to put in a seven day holding period on any online purchases. And I guarantee once you have that seventh, seventh day, your <laughs> likelihood of actually buying yeah. that thing that you thought was like such a great idea. You're like, oh, maybe I actually don't need to do this. Right. And you can apply that to any of the things I look at in the book. So the book really looks at these things that were uh, more or less built to crave everything from food to stuff information, um, status and influence, et cetera. What is the experience though that we have to sit through or understand between the interruption of the loop? Oh, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, it's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So how do you encourage people be with that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Solve all of humanity's yeah, crises. I, I do think it's a noticing and I do think it's one of those things where, um, there's not an easy answer. Yeah. It is just like, okay, can I become aware of it? Yeah. As I'm aware of it, how does this feel? How bad is it? And I think most of the time, um, you know, the first handful of times you do anything new, uh, that's a change in a behavior that um, might be a harder behavior, the harder choice to make. 
It is challenging, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes. It's like it's like exercise. Yeah. If you haven't gone for a run in 10 years and you go for a run, you might feel like you're going to die in two miles. Right. But then you do it two days later. You're like, okay, I felt pretty close to death, but not as bad. And then you repeat that and repeat that. And all of a sudden it's like two miles is nothing, you know? So you're just sort of cementing that. And I think that we need to be honest with ourselves that like changing behaviors is never going to be easy. Cause like once you've cemented a behavior, it, it just becomes sort of second nature. And we often do things because they make us feel good or are easier. I think we so often too don't want to acknowledge that we're driven by biological processes. Mm -hmm. Like I think one of the arrogances of being human for the most part is the, the concept that we have free will. And then because we have this idea that we're conscious, we're better. We're conscious of how we think ideally, which I think is probably the first step of any level of self-awareness. But we look at other animals and we're like, look at them, these simpletons. Like they just follow their instincts. Like they don't, you know, as where we seem to think that we are not susceptible to things like a scarcity loop. Like most people don't realize that their mind is being hacked all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and then we get, as you know, as I was saying earlier, we get to the place like, woe is me. That's not fair. But shit, as you were saying, it might not be your fault and it isn't your fault really, but you better do something about it because just like with drinking, I think of like, you look at the world today and you look at the consequence of the exploitation of this loop. What do you see? Oh, the consequence? I mean, the, the biggest thing to me, honestly, is, um, so I'll, I'll answer it like this. One of my favorite quotes ever is from William James. And he basically said that when you die, your life is basically will have been a culmination of what you were aware of. And now you look at how sp people spend their time. And it is often in these behaviors that we're going to look, not going to look back on and be like, wow, I'm really glad I spent my time that yeah. way. So the average person now spends 12 to 13 hours on digital media. I am not saying all Every that day. is bad. Every day. I'm not saying all that is bad at all. Yeah. But I think when you start to break it down, you look at, okay, person's like four hours on their phone. Okay, well, where's that time coming from? And it's like, all right, we got one and a half hours on, um, say, Instagram, 30 minutes on TikTok. A um, bunch of time on Twitter, another time on Reddit, you know, or, you know, it's TV. It's like four hours and you're watching four hours of that a day. You're not watching the good shit on Netflix anymore. You're bottom of the barrel stuff, right? You're just looking yeah. for something. <laughs> and so I think once you kind of frame it with that, my, my big thing is like, you've got one ride yeah, and a lot of it is spent. I think, and I'm guilty of this too, where you're just kind of like, you're just doing the next thing that's like kind of stimulating but it's ultimately not the use of your time as you really i think if you sat down intentionally and tried to spend it would be well yeah like you look back pre-smartphone and you didn't have this opportunity i mean doom scrolling especially you didn't have this opportunity to have an endless loop of your attention you experienced boredom you experienced which of course leads to creativity you experience and, and it creates ideation it you know it creates all these things you also have more time to have conversations and i think you're naturally exposed by the serendipity of making your way through a di a real world not a digital world and not to minimize the digital world great it exposes us to information we met through it you know like there's value in these things but if not moderated by us, they are by ourselves and our, and our own behaviors. Like I think about 
if you were, you know, in 1993, throwback time, you know, you're like going to the store, you're going to, you had to meet your friends at the mall. You had to meet them. You, you like got off the home phone and caught the bus or your parents dropped you off or whatever. You rode your bike, but you had to go. And now it's easier for us to flake. It's easier for us to have multiple connections. Like I think about now, if you want to, you know, be a player, it's a lot easier. Like before you had to get on a horse, ride to a woman's house or whatever, or like Mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. Now, and the dad probably had a gun or a sword, you know, now you're like, oh, you can text tons of people. You can, you do all these things. So when I look at it, I'm like the, the opportunity just by not going into an echo chamber of a phone, which an algorithm provides, it's not, that's not even anyone's fault either, is that we are not even exposed to diverse thought anymore. We're not mm-hmm. exposed to diverse experience. And I, when I think about your, and we talked a bit about this in the first podcast we did, this like absence of comfort, not just on, a, or sorry, an absence of discomfort, not just on a physicality level, but like psychologically and, and from an ideological pr- perspective, we are, it's interesting because as I say this, I want to just explore this with you. We are one, um, either in echo chambers where we don't experience psychological discomfort and cancel culture, I think really contributed to that. This like, you can't talk about that. You're not. And there's obviously value in why we did, why there was an experience of cancel culture because there was an absence of accountability. And you talk in the book about like people like Trump in the news media and how there is also this appeal of, I guess, what do you call it? Like rage or, or like, why did he spend so much more time in the media loop? And why, why do, why does media put, like, have they been reporting more bad stories than before? Yeah. So I think that um, you hit the nail on the head. It's that, you know, a lot of the behaviors that fall into the scarcity loop, they are sort of comforting. It's like yeah. a mild level of comfort. And you're not, you yeah. know, take boredom, which we talked about that in the last podcast too. Um, in the past, if you're exposed to boredom, you'd have to sit with the discomfort and then you'd have to be like, okay, where's this boredom going to take me? Yeah. So boredom is this evolutionary discomfort that basically tells you whatever you're doing with your time right now, the return on your time invested has worn thin. <laughs> so go do something else. Yeah. Now, in the past, that something else was often productive, right? Yeah. Or um, at least kind of new and go interesting. Go forage, go hunt, go yeah. have a conversation with some other person in your tribe. Right. And now when we feel that, we have an easy, effortless escape from it on our persons all the time. And I think you can apply that across the board. Um, but I often think that, you know, having to go through these uncomfortable moments uh, and not do the next easiest thing all the time that ultimately leads to more growth and uh, productivity, creativity, all these good things that we want humans to have. To your point, I'm not saying that people should never use social media right. or never play slot machines or, you know, never have a drink or like, no, not at all. Um, I think what we're really talking about is intentionality behind it. And I think that we live in a world now where <laughs> it's really easy to not do things uh, intentionally because because of things like algorithms. Um, to answer your question uh, with the Trump thing is that I think basically people's attentions gravitate to things like outrage and um, 
outrage and I guess I can't think of the right word, but sort of butting of heads, right? Controversy. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that one of the reasons that (laughs) depends on like, let's just put politics aside and say like, I don't like, don't really care what you think about his politics. When you think about him just from a media capture standpoint, he is by far the smartest media mind who has ever lived. No one has gotten more attention than Donald Trump ever. I agree with that. And I mean, it's obvious. The, yeah. the proof is in the numbers. Right. Right. And that's like, well, why is that? And it's because he was able, he came into a world of politics that is, it's important in people's lives and he made it less boring. <laughs> that's exactly mm. how slot machines took off. Slot machines took off in 1980 when we made them less boring by um, doing all these different tweaks to them. All right. So he, and part of the reason why he, probably the main reason he's not boring is because, um, there's a level of unpredictability, a high level mm. of unpredictability. What is he going to say, do, or tweet next? So he might say something that is actually kind of nice. And you're yeah. like, oh, <laughs> look at that. And then the next thing he might say something just totally like you would, you've never heard a politician say anything like that before. And, you know, you, you might be on the side that goes, I can't believe a politician would say that. God damn him. Yeah. Or you might be on the side that, that's like, this is how real people talk. Like, it's good to see a politician actually saying what normal people say in conversations without having to filter themselves, right? So there's this inherent level of unpredictability and and behaviors that are very unpredictable, and that captures attention. Now, you know, you might think that, oh, I'm I'm blaming Trump or something like that. I don't... I don't blame that at all. I think that you're seeing it from politicians on all sides of the aisle. Right, right. A lot learned from that. And I'd say all the people who are really sort of the most media focused when they'll pick up a story from them in a tabloid are people who are unpredictable, controversial. We like to watch people's failures too, which is really crazy. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like we like, what's that idea of like, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. There's been such an amplification of that. When I think about the, you didn't know about a war across the world back in the day. Right. You know, and now you know about a lot of conflicts, but they don't report on every conflict. You know about the ones that perhaps media selects to mm-hmm. highlight a little more for whatever agenda that might be. But I look at things like the, I know one person, but I'm sure this is true of many people. And I've had someone mention Trump on my podcast. And then all of a sudden you get a review because someone you know, spoke poorly about him uh, or positively about him, which is, it just shows how oppositional, uh, you know, you said that controversy, which I think social media, when I think of young people today, has really amplified that, these like ideological bubbles. Mm-hmm. Like one person I know specifically would Google Trump's name every night before bed and was like obsessed with the news about him, a Canadian, which I think is really like, Kind of funny because our politics mm-hmm. used to be, it's getting a little more exciting, but used to be so boring that we were just consumed by American politics. But that their whole life was being enraged by him. And every conversation I would have with them was seemingly would be brought back, especially when I'm living here or spending a lot of time here, was like, oh, what is it like talking to people and engaging about the subject of And I'm like, I don't even think about it. I don't even, because I'm not engaged in the news because for me, I did what you said. It was like, just turn down the volume. I don't, I then I'm not exposed. The opportunity is not there. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, so something I talk about in the book is, um, I'll say, I'll say two things, um, is that 90% of news is, is negative. 
And that holds across time. And so then you have to go, okay, has the world, world stayed, is the world itself 90% negative? I don't think it is. No. Let's compare now to 100 years ago. You're less likely to die at any given moment. You're going to live longer. You're less likely to be hungry. You're less likely to be in the front lines of World War I without any uh, antiseptic. Right, right, right. Like all these things. Um, but the news is still going to tell you all these bad things. And I think that colors our worldview. Because if, I mean, I, I think that right now is the best time to be alive, you know, when you just look at it. Um, but when you poll people, only 6% of people think the world is improving. And that's because... Wow, that's um, so low. Yeah, 6%. And I think it is because we're surrounded with so much information uh, that is negative. Now, the reason for that is because we gravitate to information that's negative. Like our attention focuses on that. Yeah. And that's an evolutionary... Yeah, negativity bias. Yeah, it's just a hack that saved us in the past. You don't want to be the caveman who is looking at the nice flower going, oh, that's so <laughs> yeah. beautiful as a saber-toothed tiger yeah, yeah, comes in on yeah. the side, right? That person dies. That person doesn't spread their DNA. You want to be the person who, like, you hear a, a twig and you're like, it's definitely, it's definitely a grizzly bear. We're yeah. definitely going to die, right? Yeah. So we still have that. Um, and what else I'll say is um, sort of about needing unpredictability in order to get attention. The first season of MTV's The Real World, which you know that show. Yeah. Um, what the, this was one of the very first reality shows, the producers, um, they interviewed all these people and they got all these nice kids that were like, Oh yeah, these are great kids. This is going to be great. They put them in a house, they put cameras on them. And the problem was that the people were normal. So <laughs> you're watching a show of normal people being like, yeah, so what are you going to have for breakfast? Oh, do you want to go on a walk later? Okay. Maybe we could go have a nice dinner later. Yeah, yeah, like it's just boring as hell. So, no one's watching that. Right. No one's watching that. What you need for reality to work, reality shows, is you need to cast people who are who have elements of unpredictability, who are crazy. You need the people who are going to drink too much, who are gonna fly off the handle, who like, you know, are gonna get in fights, who are gonna say some crazy shit. Um, so it selects for that. And I think that that is analogous almost to in a lot of ways. Um where our political world is is going in such a way, and just where entertainment in general is going, you have to select for the crazy people. <laughs> yeah, I remember being captured by a season of The Bachelor. Yeah, and uh, one of the characters that really captured me was someone who was just totally unpredictable. He would like, he was gaslighting. He was so manipulative. And then I was talking to a buddy of mine who was on The Bachelor, and they had asked him if he wanted to be like the main one. He had been on The Bachelor. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me that when they cast it, he said, like, they give you a heads up, like, yeah, there's in the rose ceremony, like, you're going to get, you're going to give roses to who you want to, but there's a few that we need you to give them to, like, they're just getting through. Yeah. Because they have that element. He's like, you'd never pick them. Like, you knew in the first time you met him, yeah. not happening. <laughs> but he's like, you got to keep him. Which I was like, that's so true. Because when I looked at my experience of that season, which was also uh, that show Love is Blind. Okay, yeah. Have you seen that one? Uh, I've seen a couple episodes, yeah. Yeah, where there is like such a mystery to it. But you hear people say horrendous shit. Which, of course, is what yeah. makes movies like The Notebook exciting. Is the unavailability. And the, yeah. there's a show called Normal People. that. It was had a huge following. The show itself is fucking heart-wrenching. It's like 
they almost are together and then they're not. And she's like leading them on. She keeps them secret. And you're like, oh, I got to keep watching this, hoping it resolves. And it never, uh, it like never gives you what you're yeah. seeking, which is of course the, f- the freaking whole point of it, which right. is good writing, good story writing, because it keeps us in this like desire to follow sort of the hero's journey. Yeah. Here's a great, okay. So here's a great example, um, especially for your audience of uh, the scarcity loop. So people tend to get stuck in abusive relationships when the abusive relationship is unpredictable. If someone just consistently is an asshole and consistently a jerk and consistently emotionally abusive, you'll leave them. It's when they're, okay, they were an asshole, they're an asshole. Oh, but then they were so nice this time. Yeah. Then they're an asshole, then they're a jerk. Oh, but then they brought flowers and we went to dinner and they were so nice. That unpredictability of behavior, you start to get, you start to look for the wins, just like a slot machine player. Play, no win. Play, no win. Play, no win. Oh, we won. Okay, let's do it again. Yeah, that's, um, that was identified by a behavioral psychologist named Karen Pryor. She writes about it. And um, once you realize that it's like, oh, it's because I'm getting these little wins every now and then. Yeah. When I look at the totality of this, 80% of the behavior is that of an asshole. Right, right. <laughs> Do I want that in my life? No, but I'm getting hooked on the unpredictability because I don't know how the person's going to behave this time around. And that captures people and keeps them in bad relationships. It's good for people to know because for sure what you hear someone say is like, oh yeah, but they're this, they're, they're uh, you hear that conversation about addicts too. It's like, but they showed this moment of, and I'm like, of course they did. Right. But I really think, you know, we, we, we are often like, we like to say something when we make a poor choice or do something we're ashamed of. We're like, but that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but yeah, there's actually something liberating by saying that's actually who you are sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if you can be with that truth, just like I tolerate bullshit, but that's not who I am. But no, it is. That's the life you're going to get if you keep doing that. I was really interested in how dating apps use this. What did you see with that? With like things like Bumble, Tinder, like just how people get caught in that. Oh yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's an unpredictable rewards game, right? It's swipe, 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 right. Swipe match. And then we, who is it? Yeah. I tell you, <laughs> you have a match. Yeah. Is it the person that I, I was like, eh, they're okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe, <laughs> all right, we'll just swipe for it, you know, or is it the person where you're like, whoa, that person's incredible, you know, and you don't, and, and then you do it again and again and again. Um, so Tinder made so much money. I think they're the highest grossing app of all time. Are they really? Yeah. Because, I didn't know that. Because what they did is um, you, would have, you would go on, you would have this unpredictable reward game experience that was fun where you're matching with people, but then you could pay for things like, um, I think they call them boosts. And so that would increase the amount of people who were seeing your profile. And then it's almost like being able to be like, okay, I'm going to pay a little bit extra money on this slot machine and I'm going to get more jackpots. Like you'll do that, right? But it's free to start. So it's free to start. You have a good time. And it's like, oh, by the way, if you just pay us like whatever, five, 10, $15, I have no idea what the economics were. You would get, your profile would get seen by more people. You would have more matches and you would have a better experience. So you get more rewards, which I, I remember being on Tinder or Bumble years ago. And when I remember being in New York and like swiping through and I can't remember what my radius of match was, but it wasn't that high. 
And all of a sudden it was like just me and a radar. Like <laughs> there's no one around. You're all alone. You'll never find anybody. Yeah. And and so then I would increase my radius. Like, ah, I could go, I could match with someone from Brooklyn or someone from Jersey or whatever. Yeah. And I, I remember one of the paid app uh, things that you could pay for was that you could change your city. Mm. So before you could only do it in your origin city, but you could like pay to be, you know, go, oh, I travel there. Yeah. I'm going there for a trip. So maybe I should get a match ahead of time. Yeah. So it's interesting how they monetize because opportunity, I want more opportunity. So right. I'll pay for more opportunity. Yeah. A lot of these endless scroll things like Instagram are, are not monetizing you in that moment though. Right, there. Your opportunity is new content, but you're actually not. You're not spending money, I guess, till you see an ad or something that catches you. Well, they're monetizing you in the sense that they're selling you. To, you're they're selling your attention to advertisers. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, yeah. So yeah, like so. Back to this this three part system: opportunity, unpredictable rewards, quick repeatability. So with Tinder, opportunity to get a mate, unpredictable rewards. I don't know who it is. I don't know when I'm going to find this person. Um, and quick repeatability. I just got to keep swiping and swiping yeah. and swiping. And eventually I'll get the jackpot. With Instagram, it could be um, you have an opportunity for status. So this would be something like social posts. Like I'm going to post, right? I have an opportunity to get likes and acceptance from people. Um, so I post and then the rewards are unpredictable. I don't know if this post is going to get a lot of likes. Right. That's awesome. Or it could just get a few. And that sucks. Could even be that someone comments on it and says, you're an idiot. Oh, that's not fun at all, right? So there's this range of outcomes. And then what do, what do people do after they post? They check and recheck to see like what's happening on the post. Like has someone commented? Has someone given me a like, et cetera? Um, and then with the swiping, it's the same deal. You have an opportunity to get um, some piece of content that'll make you feel something. Yeah. Right? It could make you laugh. could make you um, feel nostalgic. It could make you really angry. You keep scrolling and scrolling. You're going through all those videos. And then it hits. You get that brief hit, right? You get the dog video that makes you laugh your ass off. And then you keep swiping. Mm -hmm. I know in the book you talk about cravings. Mm -hmm. So what did you find out about why we crave things? Well, I, I look at uh, what we're sort of built to crave. And it all goes back to scarcity and how we evolved. So there's these humans really crave things like um, food, possessions, uh, information status over others. And when you think about all those things, they were scarce in the past, right? So take food. Yeah. There was never that much food. You didn't know where it was. It was hard to find. It took effort to find. And so we are designed to basically, when we fi find food, to um, overeat it, try and pack on weight because it was going to be scarce again. And that kept us alive. So all these things that kept us alive, food, stuff, information, status, whatever, um, we're scarce and hard to find in the past. So we've sort of um, evolved to crave them and consistently want to overdo them. It never made sense to moderate on all these things, right? Because there just wasn't enough, enough of them. And now we live in a world where we have an abundance of all these things. So we throw out a third of our food, for example. Like we have so much food, we're throwing out a ton of it. Um, not to mention our food is super hypercaloric. The average home, possession-wise, now has more than 10,000 items. In the past, the house might have had like 100 items. 10,000? 10,000. 10,000 to 40,000 is the numbers I've seen. And that's counting everything big and small, right? Um, with information, we now see more information in a single day than we would have seen in our entire life about 700 years ago. 
when you think of status, it used to be how many how many people were you going to influence in a day? Right. Maybe I mean your people's tribes rarely got over 150 people, so you kind of knew how everything worked. You could only influence so many people, and now you can go online and put something online that influences the behavior of thousands and maybe even millions of people all at once. And we have now have, um, you know, like for example, with social media, your sort of status or influence is um, ranked. It's quantified. You have X mm-hmm. amount of friends or followers or whatever it is. Yeah. You have X amount of likes. And that's different than we've ever had to deal with in the past. And so just all these changes to our environment and these things that we are built to crave, I think has cha- in turn changed us. Why do you think we can't move from this space of we would normally, as you were saying, any of those things we would want to accumulate because there was a, a chance they would go away. There was a chance mm-hmm. we wouldn't find more status and for likely a lot more safety, mm-hmm. more mate options, all that kind of stuff, which you see all those things being exploited in the advertising. Yeah. You know, so how do we move from being driven by scarcity to being driven by abundance because a lot of people I'm sure listening are like there's not abundance you know or uh, that's bypassing the reality of a scarce world or you know whatever it might be yeah well I mean what I would say to that is I mean you we can kind of split hairs all day but the reality is is that we right. have more of these things that we're built to crave than any other time in the world yeah. and um, Here's how I'll answer your question. So going back to the guy with the gambling pigeons, okay, we learned that, you know, 97% of them will choose the game that gets them less food. 97%? 97% choose to gamble. 97% choose to gamble. Um, They choose to not get the game that is the better use of their time, realistically, right? But what he finds is um, that, so these pigeons, they live in these small cages relatively small. They're kind of cooped up. The, the researchers are like, yeah, they seem to have decent lives. Like they're yeah. just in these cages, whatever. Um, he did this experiment where he put them in this really big cage and it was designed just like the wild. So the pigeons had to basically work to exist. They had to build nests. They had to go find food. They had, they would go up onto cliffs, which is like where pigeons like to hang out in the wild. They would hang out with their other pigeon friends, whatever. They do these things that pigeons are designed to do. And then he would put them back in the game. And literally every single one chose the smarter game, the game one. Wow. Yeah. And from there, the guys goes, and when you think of humans today, we live a lot different, different lives than we did in the past, right? We don't have to be active. We don't have to forage for food. Our social connections aren't like they were in the past. Um, on and on and on, Right. Because in the past, we were working hard all the time. We were present in the environment, having to do things to make sure that we could live on another day. Um, But today, we don't have that, right? Everything's changed. And he said, you know, when you think of us today, I think when we don't have um, these sort of fundamental needs met, we search for stimulation from something else. We gamble. We drink too much. We buy too much stuff. We spend too much time on social media. And it all goes back to this idea that's called the optimal stimulation theory. And it basically suggests that all animals need a certain amount of stimulation in their life to sort of be well. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get it, we go looking for it from from somewhere else. So these pigeons cooped up in their cages, they're getting stimulation from the gambling game, right? It's giving them something that's just capturing their attention and making them feel like they're 
moving They don't on. have liberate. They're not free. They're not, yeah. Right. And so I think when you sort of apply that to humans, it's like, what can I do that's going to give me deeper meaning? And it's probably not going to be the easiest thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, could be more time outdoors, developing some hobby that helps others, um, volunteering, finding some bigger thing that um, takes your time and effort in a place that is highly stimulating, but leads to a long-term reward. Because right now we live in a world where we have all these different behaviors we can do that are fun in the short term, that are stimulating in the short term, but they're detrimental in the long run. Yeah. So how can I find um, behaviors that are um, might be a little bit challenging in the short term. They're not going to be as fun as scrolling Instagram mindlessly or playing a slot machine. Um, have elements of challenge, but give me these long-term rewards that keep me healthier and happier over time. Do you think it's a fair argument to make that the presence of the 97% being probably accurate to our actual population distribution of addiction to devices and shopping and all those things, I think about those 3% of pigeons. I'm like, way to go. We need to breed those pigeons. We need to do the same with people. But I'm curious, do you think there's a, it is evidence that as a society, like if you have an addiction to TikTok, it means you have an absence of meaning. It means that you have an absence of maybe deeper connections, all these things that you're talking about. Yeah. I think if you have an addiction, then totally. Yeah. I really see addiction as a a symptom of some underlying problem. You know, I think we've traditionally, traditionally in the U.S., we've thought of addiction two different ways. We've thought of it as the person being a bad person, right? They're making this like selfish, terrible yeah. choice. Um, so put them put them in jail, you know, with drug addiction. Um, or we've thought of it as a brain disease, where it's like this person just has this like they have um, zero agency. It's all just like these brain chemicals that are leading them to disposition. Yeah. And, and by the way, the brain disease model says that um, it's a compulsive behavior that you're probably not going to get out of. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, neither one is right. Like I definitely don't think that addicts are bad people at all. Uh, But I also don't, I, I also think that sort of boiling down addiction to like, Oh, this chemical fires here. That's not it either. Right. I think you tend to see that people who get addicted to something have something missing in their lives. Yeah. And I can talk from that. (laughs) I can talk about that because that's why I drank. Um, and, um, so I think you do need to figure out, okay, why am I doing this? What am I missing? What am I searching for here? And the answers aren't always so clear. You know, um, there's a lot of different reasons why people become addicted to behaviors, but I think you need to, to, find the underlying reason and start to take actions to solve it. Are those actions going to be easy? Hell no. No. They're not going to be. But I really do think that the story of growth today is um, being willing to go through short-term discomfort to find a long-term benefit. All right. So it's like when I got sober, that sucked. (laughs) It's like the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. You know, it was just like hell for a while. But by going through that, my life started improving like fundamentally, fundamentally. And every day started getting better. And I could start to peel away the layers of like, okay, well, like why the hell were you drinking in the first place? Like that dude. And then I could go, okay, I think that was, I think this is why. And then I could start to insert ways that got me that why that were more productive, that actually enhanced my life. And it just led to more improvements over time. So for example, for me, I think a lot of it is just that like, I'm a person who seeks out extreme experiences. I like to explore the edges. 
And um, at the time I was working a job that was pretty boring. Um, it was an office job, kind of doing the same thing every day that I wasn't super passionate about. And so alcohol on the weekends would give me this opportunity to sort of be like wild and free and explore those edges in this world that's increasingly sanitary and rule-based. So once I get sober, I need to find a way to explore the edges and find extreme experiences in a way that enhances my you life. found that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so now it's like my reporting trips. Now I, yeah. uh, you know, time outside doing exercising, like that's going to enhance my life in the long term. I mean, I've built a career off of basically flipping my changing this thing I was thinking in addiction to like something that I can actually sell people in the form of books and my life has gotten better for it. When you look at a behavior, how do you identify like, where's the line if TikTok's addictive or contributing to your life? Yeah. I think that, um, I think with addiction, honestly, there's not really a line. Yeah. Um, the here's how I'll answer that is like the DSM five, which is the sort of Bible for the psychiatrist used to make di- diagnosis. Um, it doesn't even include the word addiction. It's not even in the entire thing. And the things like 500, you know, yeah. whatever pages, crazy pages. how many other things are in there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, they use substance use disorder and they basically say it's uh, substance use. Like addiction is hard to define basically. Um, they give this criteria. There's 11 different questions they ask to help figure out, like, does this person have a use disorder? Yeah. And so if you know, you answer yes to say two to five of these questions, you got a mild case. Six to eight, you got a medium case. Nine or more, you got an extreme case. Now, the funny part of this is that, you know, I when I go through it thinking through my lens of someone who drinks, I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of yeses there, you know? Mm-hmm. But then I could go, okay, well, what about my use of insert X app that I feel like I use too much? I'm like, oh shit, like I answered yes to like three of those. Mm -hmm. And so I think kind of going, like realizing that um, sort of these behaviors that we believe we overdo, they lie on kind of a spectrum. Yeah. And like, how can you, and sometimes you, you're just like, okay, well, I'm okay with three, whatever, you know. Um, I think figuring out where you lie and how you can address, address that is important because I don't, I definitely don't see addiction as like this sort of bright line um even though that's what the government has to use and studies have to use to study different populations but ultimately like addiction is determined by someone with a clipboard right who goes oh yeah i've talked to you a couple times you're you're an addict whatever so yeah i think abor mate in his book the myth of normal like mm. he does a good job of saying like it's it's in a profoundly sick society you know and like it's normal to have all these symptoms that mm-hmm. show that like if a normalized behavior is six hours a day on technology or eight or 10 or whatever it is, it's like we might look at our peers and go, oh, I'm, I'm below them or I'm above them. But it's really the cost of the behavior on our psychology. Because mm-hmm. you look at anxiety, depression. How can you not experience anxiety if you're constantly scrolling something that has an unpredictable outcome that you're constantly activated by? I think of the impact. I look today at like the level of disease, the level of mm-hmm. obesity, the level of mental health issues, especially in young people. And I'm like, wow, like, do we not want to look at the common denominators that because they're profitable businesses, yeah. you know, and, and that's sad in some sense. But and that's where it's like, when will the adults make the choices for the kids? You know, and that's that's the part where I go, oh, well, like 
You look at a kid's experience of an iPad, they know exactly how to use it already. They're just like the anthropologist who studied like how humans hold things, move with things is I think how the origin of how like the iPhone was created. Mm. So it's like they've done a pretty good job because a kid knows how to use an iPad quickly. It's so intuitive. It's like, do we need to put in, do you think we need to put in more regulation for young people for like, let's say under 14 or 16? I I think regulation for young people is probably pretty smart. Um, I think I hate regulating behaviors of adults. You know, Um, obviously there needs to be some regulation for stuff for adults. But um, I think generally for kids, especially around social media, that doesn't seem like a bad idea to me. Um, I mean, for example, in China, TikTok is different for a 14-year-old than it is for a 14-year-old in the U.S. What content gets fed to them, right? Like, I'm sure we can tweak algorithms too. If you're if you're a 14 year old on social, like you're going to get more stuff that's educational and interesting, yeah. and it's going to improve your life. Like it's a very simple coding. It's a smart thing. idea, um, and that's what they do in China, right? And then you know, shutting off, shutting it off at certain hours. Um, I know Utah is doing some stuff. I do think that yeah, when you look at how the human brain is changing during those times and what becomes important, um, and also what what we want our kids doing at this prime learning time, I think it's probably wise to regulate social media for kids and teens. How do you encourage people to rewire their habits? Cause you know, I need, yeah. Other than buy the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the book goes into um, how you can sort of reverse the loop in a lot of different uh, behaviors. And it really is, I think it does come down to tweaking the loops, um, changing either the um, the reason why you're doing the thing in the first place, the unpredictable rewards, and slowing down the repetition. I mean, I think you see that you see that work consistently in studies. And then and then asking the the bigger why, like I had to do with my why am I doing this in the first place? Yeah. You know, I think that's important. Yeah, when I consider that relationship to things like social media, part is, oh yeah, I have work on there. I have whatever. But often it is the avoidance of discomfort. It's the avoidance of like being with other people or being with feeling, you know. Yeah. And it, so much of what you were talking about in the book that I really, um, I loved how you pointed it out. But it's that so much of this, these behaviors are actually sourced from trying to, like the cravings, are sourced from this desire to be more valuable. Mm-hmm. Which I think about in the context of relationship. Most often we are seeking relationship from a place of a lack of self-worth. And so the relationship is familiar to us. The, the dynamic that we might call chemistry is familiar to us. But it's familiar because it activates something that's still incomplete, a familiar relationship we had with a caregiver that made us feel unworthy. So to actually step into worthiness, that's a... I mean, it's crazy because then you have to look and go, okay, well, if I love myself and I place myself at high value, what habits, rituals, and choices would I make? Well, the unfortunate thing is that the majority of the things people are currently choosing would probably not line up. Right. And then we got to be with the shame and the guilt that comes with the recognition that behaviors we do are harming us. Mm-hmm. So in your looking at cravings and this orientation of low self-worth that seems to drive them, 
how do you think, or what do you recommend people do in order to, to shift? Well, I think that, um, I don't think people do things that, um, like people do things for a good reason. So even if a behavior is hurting you in the long run, it's probably providing something in the short term, Mm -hmm. right? You're getting some sort of, um, benefit from it. So take me and drinking. It's like, I knew that my drinking was causing me long-term problems. But the thing about alcohol for me is that like I can fix my problems immediately with a drink. Like that's pretty damn easy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm still getting a benefit from drinking. You can extrapolate that all the way to like any drug use, right? Like an addict is always going to feel better in the moment if they just use their drug of choice, even though they know it's ruining their life in the long term. So you're consistently choosing a short-term reward at the expense of a uh, long-term growth and benefits. Yeah. And so I think, I do think really realizing like, I'm going to have to go through this tough period. Like it is going to be hard. Uh, it's just part of the bargain and part of the realization. Like that unlocked it for me. I tried to dr- stop drinking a hundred times. And every single time I'm looking for like, how could I just have like one or two drinks? Yeah. How could I like do this thing? You know, like you're just like messing around. And it's like, you have to, sometimes you got to rip the bandaid off with some stuff. And when you increase your capacity for that level of discomfort in one area, you now have it in every area. Yeah, I think so. That's why I think of things like rucking or cold water exposure or, you know, um, breath work or uh, going on adventures to the edge, Mm -hmm. you know, like you talk about, is that it's a skill that transcends every area of your life. Like if you can be with a craving and say no to it, about let's say sugar or a processed food or something like that, it's going to translate to choosing a poor partner. Yeah. Like it's because it's a skill set. Now you're observational about why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm if, okay. I'm curious now that you've written <laughs> Comfort Crisis and Scarcity Brain, and this might be jumping the gun, but do you have something that you're already exploring? And oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was like, can you stop? Uh, that's your opportunity your scarcity yeah i think it actually is um yeah i said i'm like okay i'm not gonna even do a proposal for you know (laughs) at least six months uh at least six months after this comes out and i literally sent jan and steve so for the listeners we share agents and their names are jan and steve I sent them a proposal like two days ago. Did you really? (laughs) yeah i just like i just went on a i had an idea and i went on a run for like a week and i was like here's a proposal um, I don't know why I am the way I am, but here we are. Do you, can you share at all with the investigation or where your point of inquiry is now going? It's, I, well, I can tell you it's going to be, uh, it's going to have a big overarching narrative. Um, we're going to start in, so it's basically going to track how, assuming it doesn't change in the proposal state, it's going to change, track how humans basically got from East Africa where we where we evolved to the Americas but what are the important adaptations we picked up along the way that allowed us to do that? Because it turns out that those adaptations are still things that can enhance our life today that we've often overlooked, right? It's like the ability, for example, to tell stories is very uniquely human. Yeah. And like most people freaking suck at telling stories. That's but it, true. But it turns out that like, if you can tell a good story, that's a really good business hack. That's a good relation. That's a good friendship hack. That's a good, like you can, you can use that skill in today's day and age. Yeah, you can monetize that, no problem. But you also socially get rewarded. And it is the way that we shared information. It was the way that we shared wisdom. Right. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Thanks again for coming on, man. I'm so happy we got to have another chat. Super fun. Thank you. Yeah, for everyone listening, 
Scarcity Brain, go get it wherever books are sold. Uh, website? Uh, Eastermichael.com. And then, yeah, you can find pretty much anything you want through that portal. Perfect. Thanks, brother. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks, man.